Father John Baer is the Father George Florovsky Distinguished Professor of Patristics at St. Vladimir Seminary, where he served as Dean from 2007 to 2017, and the Metropolitan Callistos Chair of Orthodox Theology at the Vrya Universität of Amsterdam. From the summer of 2020, he will be the Regius Professor, professor of Humanity at the University of Aberdeen, his early work was on asceticism and anthropology, focusing on St. Irenaeus of Lyon and Clement of Alexandria. He is writing a series of books on the formation of Christian theology, two volumes of which have already appeared, Volume 1, The Way of Nicaea, and Volume 2, The Nicene Faith. On the basis of these two volumes, he published a synthetic work, The Mystery of Christ's Life and Death. This was followed by uh, an edition and translation of the fragments of Diodor of Tarsus and Theodore of Mopsuestia, setting them in their historical and theological context. More recently, Father John published a more poetic and meditative work entitled Becoming Human, Theological Anthropology in Word and Image, and a full study of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, Identifying Christianity. More recently, he has completed a new critical edition and translation of Origins on First Principles, together with an extensive introduction uh, for Oxford University Press, and John the Theologian and his Paschal Gospel, a prologue to theology. He is currently working on a new edition and translation of On the Making of the Human Being by Gregory of Nyssa, and a new edition and translation of the works of Irenaeus, both for Oxford University Press. I'd like to welcome Father John. Thank you, um, Thomas, Michael, everybody, for the invitation to come and speak here. It, I'm, I've been looking forward to this weekend for, for months now. And thank you, for everybody, for coming out this evening um, and hearing a few words about the Gospel of John. But I'm actually going to start with the Gospel of John. I'm going to start a bit later. Because when Ignatius of Antioch was journeying from Rome in the early 2nd century, he met with various Christians along the way, and then he wrote letters to their communities. And then, finally, he wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome in anticipation of his arrival there. And the main thrust throughout that letter was urging them not to interfere in his coming fate. And he does it in really striking words. He says, and I'm quoting him, he says, birth pangs are upon me. Suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I will be a human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion of my God. So all the things that we think about ourselves are immediately turned upside down. You know, we think we've been born, that we're living, and that we're human. And he says, no, I'm not yet born, I'm not yet living, I'm not yet human. He will be born into life as a human being by, as he puts it, following the passion of my God and receiving the pure light in his martyrdom. Only then will he be born into life as a human being. We got a similar picture several decades later with Irenaeus of Lyon. He's really famous for, really renowned for the words that he wrote at one point where he says the glory of God is a living human being 
And normally the quotation ends at that point, and we just think, what a wonderful sentiment that is. But he carries on. The glory of God is a living human being, and the life of the human being is to see God, which indicates that, in fact, he again is talking about the martyr, for no one can see God and live. The martyr is the glory of God, the living human being. It's the martyr who bears witness, martyria, in the weakness of the flesh, to the strength of the spirit, so that, as he puts it a little bit later on, from both of these is made a living human being, living indeed because of the participation of the spirit, human because of the substance of the flesh. Again, talking about the martyr, a living human being. We can see the same thing in Melito of Sardis, but we'll leave that for now. Now, what is this understanding of what it is to be a human being and its connection with Christ's own passion is really striking. What is also striking is that they were all, across two generations, disciples of John the Theologian. Now, thanks to the work of Charles Hill in his book, The Johannine Corpus in the Early Church, the twin theories of what he calls orthodox Johannophobia and Gnostic Johannophilia the idea that in the second century the Orthodox really wouldn't dare touch the, the Gospel of John. It was the domain of the Gnostics until Irenaeus was able to wrench it back from them, which dominated so much of the 20th century scholarship, together with all sorts of outlandish theories proposed for the authorship of this Gospel, can finally be laid to rest. He really put that case to bed. If we look back to the 19th century, already in the 19th century, J.B. Lightfoot pointed out that our knowledge of John and his followers is far more concrete for any other apostle or evangelist. As Lightfoot put it, while Peter and Paul converted disciples and organized communities, John, in his words, founded a school. That is, those who look back to John as the source of the theological and liturgical tradition to which they adhered. And we know their names. In the first generation, it's Polycarp and Papias, Ignatius being very close to the school. In the next generation, it's Melito, Apollinarius of Hierapolis, Polycrates of Ephesus, and above all, Irenaeus. This is, moreover, it should be noted, a school of flesh and blood Christians rather than a school or community constructed from the implied reader of modern literary analysis. This is historically grounded. It is then to John and to his gospel that we should turn to find the roots of their theology and their particular understanding of what it is to be human. Now, the importance of John's gospel for theological reflection during the patristic era and ever since, you can hardly overstate it. Christ's words about his eternal existence with the Father opened up the vision of Trinitarian theology, and one would not even speak of incarnation were it not for the prologue. Although John never actually speaks of the birth of the word, nor do the infancy narratives also do not mention the word when they come to narrate the birth of Jesus. But we put the two together for odd reasons. The Gospel of John is also very much of an enigma. Harnack put it, it's the greatest riddle that Christianity's most ancient history offers. And he continues this way, he says, 
It depicts a Christ who puts the indescribable into words and proclaims as his own witness what is the very basis for this witness and what his disciples sensed of him. A Pauline Christ walking upon the earth, speaking and acting far more human than that one, yet far more divine, with an abundance of connections to the historical Jesus, yet at the same time the most sovereign treatment and displacement of history. John's focus on the glory of Jesus led Ernest Kaiserman, half a century later, to the perplexing conclusion that, in his words, apart from a few remarks that point ahead to it, the passion comes into view in John only at the very end. One is tempted to regard it as being a mere postscript which had to be included because John could not ignore this tradition, nor yet could he fit it organically into his work. His solution was to press the features of Christ's victory upon the passion story. So John treats the passion simply as a postscript which he had to include because of, of, of tradition, but he couldn't actually fit it in his own narrative. And then he continues, John is so focused on the glory of Jesus that it results in a Christology that is little better than naive docetism. Again, his words. And this of the one of whom the theology of the incarnation is founded. Something clearly has gone very, very wrong in all of this. What makes Kaiserman's conclusion not only troubling, but actually really bizarre, is the fact that the annual celebration of Pascha actually seems to have begun in the circles around and following John. Pascha starts with John. Easter. Easter starts with John. The date of the Christian celebration of Pascha, I'm going to use the word Pascha, Pascha Easter, was a subject of controversy at the end of the second century, a controversy which is made more obscure by the way that Eusebius in the fourth century preserves and presents the evidence, and the interpretation of the evidence is still a subject of debate and disagreement today. However, scholarly consensus does seem to have come to the position, and I think it's right, that rather than being a deviation, as it appeared to Eusebius in the fourth century, the quartodeciman practice of celebrating Pascha on the 14th of Nisan was in fact the original practice, and probably even until the mid-second century, the only practice. It's striking. All the information we have about the celebration of Pascha, of Easter, in the second century, we have the Epistola, Epistola Apostolorum, the Epistle of the Apostles, the fragments of Apollinarius of Hierapolis, Melito's Peri Pascha, on Pascha, and even the very texts that are preserved by Eusebius, a letter by Polycrates and a letter by Irenaeus, despite what Eusebius says about the letter of Irenaeus, all of these testify to the quarter decimal practice, celebrating Pascha, Easter, on the 14th of Nisan, whatever day of the week. On the other hand, the evidence for the connection between Sunday and the day of resurrection is really slow to emerge. It's not there in the New Testament. In the New Testament texts, we speak about gathering together on a Sunday. 
which is in fact only 1 Corinthians 16.2, Acts 27, and perhaps Apocalypse 1.10. The only places where it talks about Christians gathered together on a Sunday. No connections made to the resurrection. Nor is it there in Pliny, who also testifies to Christians gathering together on the first day of the week. It's not there in the Didache, that early Christian document, when it exhorts Christians to gather together, kata kiriakin, on the Lord's Day, or the Lords of the Lord. And give, they should, they're to gather on the Lord's Day and give thanks and celebrate the Eucharist. It doesn't mention anything about the passion of the resurrection. Even when it gives directions about how the Eucharist is to be celebrated, no mention of the resurrection. Regarding the place of the Lord's Day in this early period, Paul Bradshaw and Maxwell Johnson conclude in their words that it was understood primarily not as a memorial of Christ's resurrection, but as a key weekly expression of the constant eschatological readiness for the parousia which was intended to permeate the whole of the Christian's daily prayer and life, a weekly celebration, a Christian Sabbath. And this point even continues even in the two second century texts which begin to make the connection between this day and the resurrection. In the letter of Barnabas, Barnabas says this, he says, we celebrate with gladness the eighth day in which Jesus also rose from the dead, was made manifest and ascended into heaven. We're celebrating the eighth day and by the way, also this. Similarly with Justin, when he speaks about gathering together on the day of the sun, he says, the reason why we do this is because it is the first day on which God changed matter and darkness and matter and made the world, and also Jesus Christ our Savior rose from the dead on this day. In other words, the first day or the eighth day is a more embracing and primary concept than that of the resurrection. The earliest indication we have that some celebrated an annual Paschal feast, Easter, on a Sunday is with Irenaeus in a letter he wrote to Victor, which is preserved by Eusebius. There he says, the controversy is not only about the day, but also about the very manner of the fast. For some think they ought to fast for one day, others two, others even more. And in the opinion of others, the day amounts to 40 hours, day and night. Really enigmatic words. The best reconstruction I can offer is that those who fast for one day would be the quarter decimals. They are fasting on the 14th of Nisan before the celebration of Pascha. Those who fast for two days would be those who celebrate Pascha on a Sunday and they fast on the Friday and the Saturday. Well, those who fast for 40 hours have combined the Friday and the Saturday fast into one uninterrupted fast. Okay? Now that those who celebrated Pascha on a Sunday also fasted on a Saturday which Tertullian is the first to point out is never a day of fasting apart from at Pascha, indicates that the Sunday celebration of Pascha was an adaptation from the quarter decimal practice. 
transferring the day-long fast which preceded the quarter decimal celebration to the Saturday. Okay? The fast that you had on the 14th of Nisan gets put on the Saturday when you're celebrating the resurrection on the Sunday. This began, according to Irenaeus, much earlier in the time of our predecessors, most likely referring to the exchange on these matters between Polycarp and Anacetus in the middle of the 150s. So that construal of Irenaeus's words is the only tangible evidence we have that some were celebrating Pascha on a Sunday in the middle of the second century as a modified form of the older quarter decimal practice. And that's the very time at which Justin starts to say, we're also celebrating the resurrection on this day. It's the eighth day, it's the first day, and we're also doing this. Okay, that's all the information we've got from the first two centuries. Now, given that that's all the information we've got, it is really striking how strong, in contrast, how strong the evidence is for celebrating Pascha on the 14th of Nisan, which is a practice upheld by the school of John and claims to derive from him. So, so far is it not the case that John had no room for the Passion, the Pascha, and he only included it because he had to. In fact, he's the one who starts this annual celebration. Now, two further points should be noted, and then I'm going to pick up the question of what it is to be human. Two further points should be noted. Firstly, it is not the commemoration of the Passion of Christ understood as a crucifixion in distinction to the resurrection. The Pascha of Christ is a singular event, at least initially. When you read Melito, how he celebrates Pascha on that night, it includes crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. All of those together. And that, in fact, is something that goes right back to the Gospel of John itself, in which Christ ascends or is exalted in glory upon the cross. So that as John Ashton puts it, the passion and resurrection must be viewed as a single happening, trampling down death by death, a single happening. Moreover, that Christ hands over the spirit from the cross, he, he bows his head and he, in English we say he gave up the ghost, but it really is, he pneuma. he hands over the spirit, Ashton points out, enables John, in his words, to fuse Easter and Pentecost as well, hinting there's no need to think of the latter as distinct and separate. I wouldn't use the word fused, but I would suggest rather that they are not yet separated. These are all aspects of the singular event, which in the centuries to come, come to be celebrated as distinct events. Just as pure white light can be refracted through a prism to get a spectrum of colors. That's what happened by the fourth century after Constantine when you're able to go over here to celebrate this, here to celebrate that, here for the burial, here for the resurrection, here for the century. You can have a whole liturgy of space and time in a way you didn't in the earlier centuries. You, get, you put a pure white light through a prism, you get a spectrum of colors, yet even this spectrum of colors all remains aspects of the one event. They are held together in Christ trampling down death by death. Okay, that's the first point I want to mention. The second point regards John himself. Polycrates of Ephesus, in a letter that he wrote in the 180s, 
preserved by Eusebius. He describes John with these words. He says, John was the one who lay on the Lord's breast, well, we know that from the Gospel of John, who was a priest wearing the petalon, the gold leaf mark with the name of the Lord, the mark of the high priest, which the high priest would only wear once a year as he entered the Holy of Holies. He was a priest wearing the petalon. These words, as Richard Baucom points out, in his words, state as precisely and unambiguously as it was possible to do that John officiated as a high priest in the Jerusalem temple. That's what those words say. John officiated as a high priest in the Jerusalem temple. Okay, what are we to make of that? Some have tried to argue that it really does preserve an accurate historical memory. After all, John was known to those in the temple, and it's on his word that Peter was allowed in uh, to enter in. But really, to say that John actually was a high priest officiating in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, most people take that as being implausible. Richard Baucom, um, other people suggested it simply meant in a loose or a metaphorical sense, in the way that all Christians are said to be priests, nothing more than that. But that doesn't do justice to Polycrates' very specific assertion. Not simply he's a priest, but he's wearing the, the petalon. Richard Baucom, in his book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, suggests that this is an instance of what he calls, in his words, an exegetical procedure. And by that he means the conflation of various figures with the same name. So in this case, John, who wrote the Gospel, with the John mentioned in Acts 4, who was of a high priestly family. Okay? Now, there's no doubt that such conflations were made in early Christianity, but that doesn't explain why Polycrates went the extra step. He doesn't simply say John was of a high priestly family, which would be all that could be derived from Exodus, uh, uh, Acts 4. He says, John wore a petalon. And as Baucom points out, that is an unambiguous assertion that John was the high priest. Now, we have to remember that John is the only disciple, and only in his gospel, to stand at the foot of the cross. And he bears his witness from precisely that point. He who's seen it as born witness. And his witness is true, and he knows that he tells the truth that you might believe. The switch from he who bears it was born witness, and we are confirming his witness. So from John to his community. The way that John bears his witness is also very distinct from the Synoptic Gospels. Unlike those Gospels, John repeatedly stresses that Jesus is in control all the way through, that he will lay down his life when he's ready, not when he's going to be seized by the guards, but when I'm ready, I'll do it. And although John is introduced by the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 29, as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, throughout the rest of the gospel, John does not draw at all upon any atonement theme. Yeah, this is Baptist who says he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but throughout the rest of the gospel, that's not present at all. Rather, the way that John presents the passion of Christ traces it back to the unconditioned love of God himself. 
It's because he lays down his life for his sheep, Christ says, that the Father loves him. It's an act of love. And this is the expression of God's love for the world. In this way, God loved the world. John 3.16, always mistranslated. It's not God so loved the world, but God loved the world this way. It's utos. So as in thus, God thusly loved the world. All of this, moreover, culminates in a different description of the crucifixion on a different day, the day of preparation, 14th of Nisan, rather than the following day, with different words spoken from the cross. Christ ascends the cross in glory with a beloved disciple and the mother standing at the foot of the cross, and he addresses the two of them with words of sonship. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Then he says, it is finished. He bows, and it's active. It's not just his head slumps. He bows. He's actively doing it. He bows his head, and he hands over the spirit. Peredoke to pnevma. Always mistranslated as he hands over, or he gave up his ghost, his spirit. That's the spirit, top nevma. So crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, all together in that moment in, in, of the Passion in, in John, as it's celebrated by one of his disciples, Melito. So the question then is, what is it that is finished when Christ says it is finished? Now we often hear these words as if we're reading another synoptic gospel. It's come to an end. He breathes his last breath and it comes to an end. But the word John uses is much different than that. It's tetelestai, which is more the sense of it is finished. It's completed. It's perfected. Not just simply, it's done. It's perfected. It's brought to completion. And so as Christ tells us explicitly in the Gospel of John that Moses wrote of him... It's to Moses that we should look to find out what is finished in this moment. So as the words, it is finished, are said when the Passover lambs are being slain in the temple, and John, as Polycrates would put it, wears a petal on as the high priest, we should first look to Exodus. A number of scholars over the last couple of decades have pointed, especially Mary Coley, has pointed out that the temple has been reconfigured or reconstructed in the Gospel of John. And that's indicated from the beginning of the Gospel. When Christ invites the Jews to destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, he speaks, the evangelist explains, of the temple of his body. It's also played out across the whole of the Gospel. The gospel is much more focused on the temple and its liturgy than the synoptics. In the synoptics, it's only mentioned that Christ goes up to Jerusalem to the temple at Pascha. In Luke, it's also said that his parents went up every year, but there's no role played thereafter. The narrative of John, on the other hand, is plotted by temporal indicators of six feasts. And the sequence of those feasts, from the third one onwards, is a sequence of the liturgy in the temple. In other words, it's following the calendar year. 
which leads you to wonder how we can get from here to here, and Boltman suggests that you have to you know, rearrange the chapters to make a more smooth geographical itinerary. No, the itinerary of, of Jesus in the Gospel of John is not geography, it's the liturgy of the temple. So he's presented, uh, six feasts occur throughout the temple, in and through which Christ is presented in the temple and as the temple, and also as a subject of its feasts. And those six feasts then culminate as seventh with the temporal markers of his appearance to Mary on the first day of the week while it was still dark, so tying it back to the Sabbath, to the disciples without Thomas on the evening of that day, and then again eight days later, first day, eighth day. He doesn't use the word language of three days. He does at the beginning, but not when he describes the Passion. So in this way, what is announced at the beginning of the gospel, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, is completed through the course of the liturgical year at the Passion on the 14th of Nisan. Teteliste is finished, it's completed, it's perfected. The temple of his body also turns out to be a much more embracing reality, a comprehensive reality, for it also includes all those in whom Christ promised that he and his father would come to make their home. Ikos, another word for temple. Moreover, as Mary Coley points out, has demonstrated, the title affixed to the cross in the Gospel of John reads, Jesus the Nazorian, not the Nazarian. And that points back to the prophecy in Zechariah, Zechariah 6, 11 to 13, as it was read at the time of Christ. And this prophecy speaks of the man whose name is Branch, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and there shall be a priest by his throne, and the peaceful understanding shall be between them both. So in this way then, so far is it not the case that the passion was for John merely a postscript which he had to include, but rather John was in fact regarded by his school as being the high priest ministering at the paschal mystery in which the lamb is Christ himself and the temple is Christ's body that is his disciples. The temple is built by the man named Branch and besides him stands the priest, uh, the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, according to the letter of Aristeus, the sight of the, high, of the high priest wearing his glorious vestments, especially the petalon, was enough to make one, in his words, awestruck and dumbfounded. It would, the letter continues, make one think that he had come out of this world into another. Now, compared to the synoptics, the Gospel of John has a similar effect. The vision of the apocalyptic Son of Man, promised in the last mention of the Son of Man from Christ's own lips in the synoptics at his trial before the high priest, right at the very end, is promised at the beginning of the Gospel of John, You'll see greater things than this. You'll see the heaven open. You'll see the Son of Man with angels ascending and descending upon him. And everything after, thereafter, is not as it seems. Everything seems turned upside down. 
as a new world opens up before us. It's this particular character of John that led John Ashton to speak of the gospel as being an apocalypse. In reverse, upside down, inside out. He later qualified it, but the designation still holds. But we can now be a bit more specific. If the gospel of John is an apocalypse, it is so because of the world that opens up through the passion. The temple is built, John is a high priest, he is the lamb. We are his body. So John looks back to Exodus to present Christ's work. Remember in Exodus chapter 25 to 31, we have seven speeches about what Moses was to build. And then the construction of the tabernacle. In the final lines of the book, it says, Moses finished, the same word, finished all the works and the cloud covered the tent of witness, tin skinin tu materiu, the tent of witness. And the tent, the skinny, was filled with the glory of God, such that Moses could not enter it because the tent was filled with the glory of the Lord. Now we know, however, and we can recognize the significance of the fact that what Moses built with his hands was but a copy of what Moses saw on the mountain. The true tabernacle of witness, of martyrdom, martyria, and the glory of the Lord is Jesus himself, Christ himself, the one who, as John points out, Isaiah saw his glory in the temple. Now that Exodus finishes with the glory of the Lord filling the tent of witness, the skinny to martyriu, takes us back to Ignatius who through his martyrdom hopes to come to the pure light and in this way become a human being born into life. For as Irenaeus puts it, the glory of God is the living human being, the temple of God. Now to understand what's going on there, we have to go beyond Exodus and back to Genesis, the first book of Moses and the very opening of scripture itself. After all, the very first words of the Gospel of John tell us that John is playing with Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning. Yeah? You're supposed to read the two texts together. According to Anastasius of Sinai, the relationship between the seven days of creation and Christ was a matter of discussion from the time of Papias and the elders around John. Okay? He records it, that they were talking about this, the elders around John, including Papias. Irenaeus and Victorinus of Petau independently record a tradition which almost certainly goes back to Papias and the elders in Asia who knew John. They knew the tradition about the seven ages of Christ's life. Irenaeus even affirms that John had informed them that Christ had reached the age of a teacher that is somewhere between 40 and 50 years old. But what we do with that is for a different time. Okay. According to Victor Rhinus of Petau, again, words which almost certainly go back to Papias in the very early second century, he says, Christ consummates his humanity, humanitatem consumat, in the number seven. Birth, infancy, boyhood, youth, young man, maturity, death. Seven stages. 
Okay? So we've got indications that they were concretely discussing this. So what is finished then on the cross in the Gospel of John is the work of God announced in Genesis. Genesis 1. Let's start with Genesis 1. So Genesis 1. Scripture opens with God issuing commandments. Let there be light, a firmament, let the earth bring forth living creatures. This divine let it be, this divine fiat, is sufficient to bring all these creatures into existence. Let it be, it was so, and it was good. End of the day, next day, let it be, and so on. But then, having declared all these things into existence by a word alone, setting the stage, as it were, God, not with an imperative, let it be, but with a subjunctive, announces his project. Let us, let, let us make, it's a project, let us make a human being in our image after our likeness. It's the only thing which God specifically deliberates about. It's his divine purpose and resolve, but it's said with a subjunctive, not an imperative. It's a project. The stage is set, God begins his project. So with scripture opening with this announcement of the particular project of God, we can now hear a further dimension to Christ's last words from the cross in the Gospel of John. Teteliste. It's finished. It's completed. It's perfected. And that is confirmed unwittingly by Pilate. Behold the human being. Idu or anthropos. Eke homo. So you have scripture opening up, setting a stage, let it be, let it be, let it be, let us make. And he concludes that the passion scene in the Gospel of John when Pilate says, behold the human being. So the particular project of God to create a human being in his image and likeness is not accomplished by a simple fiat, let it be, given then and there, let there be a human being, but rather is given by the fiat of Christ himself. Not my will, but thine. And then those like Ignatius, who also in Christ give their own let it be. So in the other book of John, the book of Revelation, in the letter to the Laodiceans, Christ identifies himself, the crucified and risen one identifies himself as being, I am the Amen, the response, let, it, let us make Amen, I am the Amen, the true and faithful witness martyr, the Ahi of God's creation, the beginning of God's creation. That's how the crucified and risen Christ identifies himself. So John's playing on Genesis 1, but he doesn't stop there. He also plays on Genesis 2. It's clear, for instance, in the way in which the healing of the man born blind is described by John in chapter 9. Christ supplies what was lacking in his original formation in the womb in the most peculiar way imaginable. He spits on the earth, makes mud to smear in the place where the eye should have been but was missing, thereby recapitulating the original formation of the human being in Genesis 2. And moreover, when asked by his disciples, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, Jesus says, no, it's not a matter of that. This man was born blind, he says, so that the works of God might be made manifest in him. 
And so Irenaeus concludes from all of that, the work of God is fashioning a human being. Opera autem dei plasmatio est hominis. This is what God does. He makes human beings. So on the Sabbath, when this is complete, when this on which this complete, is completed, the man born blind, the finishing of the humanity of the man born blind, by giving him the eye which was missing in the beginning, in the same way, taking earth and making it up, so that the man born blind can now see the light. The Sabbath on which this is completed is not simply the Sabbath of the Pharisees on which no human work is carried out, but is the Sabbath of God himself, whose work is fashioning the human being in the stature of Christ. And Christ throughout the whole of John 9 is indicated by the number seven, not six. Christ is named seven times in the passage, and the passage is divided into seven scenes. And so this Sabbath is then completed in the Passion when Christ is crucified after the sixth hour on the day of preparation, towards the evening, then rests in the tomb on the Sabbath, the great Sabbath, when God himself rests, as John puts it. The great Sabbath, anyway. Further connection between John and Genesis 2 are already indicated by Tertullian. Tertullian wrote this. He says, as Adam was a figure of Christ, Adam's sleep sketched out the death of Christ, who was to sleep a mortal slumber so that from the wound inflicted upon his side might be figured the true mother of the living, the church. This parallel between Eve and the woman, the virgin, is played out by John all the way across his gospel, the whole of the gospel, and it also connects the gospel with the apocalypse. She appears as the woman at three points in the gospel, at the beginning, the middle, and the end. So she's first addressed in Cana, when Jesus' hour has not yet come. Woman, what have you to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Remember, the hour always in John always refers to the passion. When the hour has come, she is again addressed as woman. Okay? The RSV does a really bad job in translating this. It's, it's John 19, 25 to 26. It's standing by the cross of Christ, Jesus, were his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Okay, that's an RSV translation. They've translated it as his mother each time, but in fact it transitions. This is how it should be, this is how it should be read. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary's wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw the mother and the disciple whom he stood, loved standing near, he said to the mother, woman, behold your son. So it's a really subtle change in perspective. When given in the perspective of the evangelist describing the scene, it is his mother. When given from the perspective of Jesus, Jesus sees the mother and when addressed by Jesus, he does so as woman and speaks of sonship. Woman, behold your son. 
Now, between these two points, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour is not yet. And then our woman, behold your son. Between these two words, the woman also appears in the words of consolation given by Christ to his disciples as he's about to depart in John chapter 16, verse 20 to 22. Okay. So he says here, this is the middle point, it's about to depart between these two points. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When the woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered of the child, the word there is pedion, child, she no longer remembers the tribulation for joy that a human being is born into the world. The RSV mistranslates it again, for joy that an infant is born into the world. No, it goes from, she's in travail. Um, when she's delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the tribulation, for joy that a human being is born into the world. So the passage contains this transition from the birth of a child to that of a human being born into the world. The very structure of that sentence parallels what you've got in the prologue in verse 9. He was a true light enlightening every human being coming into the world. That doesn't mean somebody being born of their parents. It means somebody becoming a human being like Ignatius. The description of the woman in travail is also rather odd. I didn't see anybody scratching their heads when I read it out, but listen to it again. When the woman is in travail, she has sorrow. Really? Is that the right word to use for woman in the pangs of giving birth? Sorrow? When she's delivered of the child, she no longer remembers a tribulation, thlipsis. That would be the word to use. So why is she sorrowful there? This raises a question, as Judith Liu puts it, is this a birthing or a dying? We meet birth here in the Gospel of John only when we encounter death. Indeed, the birth, which is not narrated in the Gospel, becomes through 1621 a death. Or is a death a birth? She asks. Or perhaps, as we saw with Ignatius, death is birth into life as a human being, which comes about through the cross. Woman, behold your son. So, while the woman, built up from the rib, taken from the side of the sleeping Adam, that woman is named Eve, or in a Septuagint, Zoe, life, because, as Genesis puts it, she is the mother of the living. Although she's called the mother of the living, all her children die without any choice. They necessarily die. All her children are born into death. That woman is paralleled by the blood and water coming from the dead Christ, indicating, as Tertullian already put it, the church, who is the true mother of the living, but whose children live by dying in Christ. And then the parallels that John plays upon in Genesis 2 continues. If you think back to uh, Genesis 2, the rib is built up into a woman, Eve, and the woman is led to Adam. At that point, he has only been identified in Genesis 2 as the one placed in the garden to work it. 
Likewise, when Mary sees a risen Christ in the garden, she supposes him to be the gardener. John's playing with these texts all the way through in his description of Christ and his passion. According to Athanasius of Sinai, again, seeing Genesis as talking about Christ and the church also originated in the circle of elders around John whose traditions Papias recorded. So the connection between Genesis 1, seven days of creation, and um, the Gospel of John, Christ and his passion, and likewise Genesis 2, Christ and the church. The imagery of the woman, the virgin mother, is used absolutely extensively by Irenaeus to describe the church. The church, he says, is the virgin mother who rejoices when she receives back alive those whom she had miscarried as dead, those who had initially backed away from their martyrdom. She finally gives birth to living children who learned how to go to their martyrdom. In another place he says, she is the pure womb, opened purely by the pure one, which now regenerates human beings unto God. He blazes away, opens the womb purely so that we too can be born through that womb. And another place he talks about the church as being the mother, who because of the love which she cherishes towards God, sends forth throughout all time a multitude of martyrs to the Father, a multitude of people who've put on Christ, baptism, taking up the cross, bearing witness. So Genesis 2 provides this background for understanding the church as a virgin mother. Further background for it, of course, can be found in the transition from the hymn of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 to the opening of Isaiah 54. And that's a note already used by Paul. Hymn of the suffering servant culminates, concludes with 54.1, Rejoice, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth and, and sing and shout to you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. So the barren one, older than all creation, gives birth to children of God, those who are baptized into the death of Christ, but to treat Isaiah and Paul for another time. Now, further connections then open up between the gospel and the apocalypse, or the book of Revelation. Peter Leithart, in his recent commentary on the book of Revelation and the apocalypse, has pointed out he describes the gospel and the apocalypse as being a two-part royal romance. It opens with an announcement of a wedding, but Christ says, my time is not yet. Christ is identified as being the bridegroom, the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom and all that kind of thing. Christ meets many women who could have been the bride, but none of them turn out to be. And then when the hour finally is, the bridegroom is unveiled upon the cross. His hour has come. In turn, the apocalypse opens with the enthroned slain lamb, seen by the same John in the same place, because the cross is the throne, but now told in a different register, in a different genre. So the apocalypse starts with that, and it ends up with the marriage feast. So that if the gospel is a preparation of the bridegroom, the apocalypse is a preparation of the bride um, to culminate in that marriage feast. The bride is prepared by the filling up of the number of the martyrs. 
But there's even more to be got from this. And with these two words, I'll, I'll conclude. When Christ addresses the woman, he says, Behold your son. Origen commenting on this, I know Origen is often dismissed for being too allegorical, but actually here he's much more literal than we would ever dare to be. He says, We might dare say then that the Gospels are the first fruits of all Scripture, but the first fruits of the Gospel is that according to John, whose meaning no one can understand, who has not leaned on Jesus' breast, nor received Mary from Jesus to be his mother also. But he who would be another John must also become such as John to be shown to be Jesus, so to speak. For if Mary had no son except Jesus, in accordance with those who hold a sound opinion of her, and Jesus says to his mother, Behold your son, not Behold, this man also is your son. He has said equally, Behold, this is Jesus whom you have borne. For indeed, everyone has been perfected, no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And since Christ lives in him, it's said of him to Mary, Behold, your son, the Christ. Or as Hippolytus puts it, commenting on the woman clothed with sun in the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 12, clothed with sun, crying out in her pangs of, tra of travail, in anguish for delivery. He says, this woman, he says, is the church which will never cease bearing from her heart the word that is persecuted by the unbelieving in the world. The male child she bears is Christ, God and man, announced by the prophets, whom the church continually bears as she teaches all nations. Aitikusa, she eternally bears the Christ by teaching all nations. So, going back to the initial topic, and to conclude, our becoming human in the way that Ignatius, Irenaeus, and others of the school of John speak about it. Our becoming human is turning from the necessity and mortality in which we've come into existence with no choice, we're in existence, and an existence which necessarily culminates in death, whatever we do, turning from that by using that very mortality in the martyria of following Christ, giving our own let it be to the only thing which is said to be God's own work, but for which he doesn't say let it be. And indeed, how could he? If to be human is to be one who voluntarily takes up the cross living a life of voluntary love in Martyria for your neighbor. In fact, God could not say, let there be a human being. He can make those who give their amen, their let it be. So turning the ground of our existence, as we've come into this world, from necessity and mortality, through that mortality, into freedom, voluntary, self-sacrificial love grounding our existence in that freedom and, and love, 
And then in this way, Christ is born, inviting all to come to the fullness of the stature of the humanity of Christ, being his body. Thank you.